As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. It, uh, it really is a, a terrible idea to try to change the meaning so that people can't even get certain thoughts across. So if you ask, is it possible for uh, a, uh, a, a, a white, powerless, unemployed, working class person in a poor uh, southern or Appalachian town to, be, uh, to have um, derogatory opinions about African Americans? And you say, oh, no, no, we can't ask if he's racist because uh, racist means that you have to have power. Hi, Professor. It's a pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm Kurt Jaimungle, the director. This is Peter, and he's helping me tag team this interview. Okay, very good. Pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you. Okay, so is it all right if we just get right into the questions? Let's go. Starting off, I want to know, what is the left? We have to define the left, and I would like you to give its defining traits, its characteristics. It's hard to give a definition because political ideologies turn into tribes, and so people affiliate with those in the group they like to interact with that they value morally. And nowadays, especially in the United States, it's harder and harder to discern a common intellectual thread behind the left and the right. We see that, especially in the right, where you have uh, uh, pro-Russian, anti-free trade right-wingers boggling the mind of anyone who uh, was a right-winger even 10 years ago. Uh, also, the, the uh, left has switched in a number of its affiliations, but I, I would use it informally in the way that uh, people tend to identify the, uh, those who are sympathetic with, with uh, socialism, those who tend to be, uh, at least in American politics, more likely to be in the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. There are a number of positions that go with it, but they can often be blurred as the coalitions themselves uh, recoalesce. Would you identify with, or do you identify with someone who's on the left? Um, no, uh, I, I certainly don't identify with, uh, with uh, the right. And most people would identify me based on my positions as uh, center left in terms of, a, the, um, I believe in a graduated income tax. I believe in regulations on uh, uh, environmental uh, disposition. Uh, I, uh, I, I agree with, I, I'm in favor of um, uh, social programs like welfare and uh, medicine. On the other hand, I also believe in uh, the, the importance of markets. I believe in uh, the primacy of free speech and individual rights. Uh, I believe that uh, policing is an important component of uh, reduction of violence, which is not a popular view on the left. So I have an eclectic uh, mix, uh, which I examine on an issue-by-issue -issue basis and evaluate in terms of my best reading of the evidence. But I try not to fall into an ideology on the right or the left. There seems to be a considerable overlap in recognizing these differences. In your opinion, when does the left go too far? Uh, in, uh, let's see, a number of ways, especially the contemporary left, has tended to gravitate toward identity politics, toward seeing um, uh, 
debate and analysis of social issues in terms of the relative power of different ethnic groups and races and seeing social progress in terms of rectifying an imbalance between whites and blacks or, or um, men and women, uh, as opposed to recognizing discrimination that has occurred, but striving toward a society in which people are evaluated based on their individual rights and their individual merits. So identity politics, and with it, a, uh, a relativistic epistemology that says that your opinions are determined by your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your handicap status, as opposed to their internal consistency and uh, support by evidence. Uh, I think there's far too much hostility to um, markets and to capitalism on the left, just given the historical and uh, contemporary record of which societies one would want to live in, uh, North Korea versus South Korea, West Germany versus East Germany, uh, Venezuela versus uh, Uruguay, for example. Uh, uh, Let's see, well, those are, oh, I, I think the, um, as I mentioned before, uh, the uh, uh, hostility uh, among the left to rule of law and, and uh, law enforcement is uh, uh, inconsistent with their role of policing in reducing violent crime. Uh, that would be another issue that the left, I think, has uh, uh, lost touch with, um, uh, with facts. Uh, the importance of, um, market economies in elevating societies from extreme poverty. The fact that uh, global extreme poverty has declined by 75% in the last 30 years, largely because of liberalization of market economies in countries like China and Vietnam and India. Uh, so those are a number of issues in which uh, I think the, the, the left has uh, uh, gone off the tracks. But the uh, certainly the contemporary American right is uh, far worse. Um, the, the Trumpist right in um, uh, denigrating international agreements and norms, which are increasingly going to be necessary to confront global challenges like climate change. The hostility to any form of uh, regulation, even ones that uh, would be justified by a um, market-friendly mindset, such as pricing, um, harm to the environment, which even if you're a staunch capitalist, you realize the market itself uh, will not uh, take care of. The um, indifference to the, uh, the, the plight of people who can't contribute enough to a market economy to support a decent way of life, uh, the, uh, the indifference to the, to the poor, to the sick, uh, to the elderly, and, and therefore a, a rather ideological opposition to all forms of, of uh, government assistance to the, uh, to the needy. We just know, again, that there's nothing that uh, dictates that you have to be hostile to social programs if you're sympathetic to markets, because it's just a basic of, of uh, analysis of markets that they don't provide for, for, for the poor. So unless you just are happy to let the poor starve and die of disease, you have to have markets, you have to have mechanisms that the market doesn't provide. And this is hardly radical, even if you are a uh, free market libertarian. Uh, you've done some so, work with the, sorry, you've done some work with the Heterodox Academy, right? Uh, yes, that's right. I gave the keynote at their last meeting, for example. Have you seen the rise of the campus left? Do you see it as becoming more extreme in the past few years? And, and can you give some examples of that if you do see it as becoming more extreme? Uh, yeah, I think, it, I think it has, although, as I said in my address, uh, Contra, contra Billy Joel, we did start the fire, we being the baby boomers. And there were episodes of intolerance and shutting down of uh, free speech uh, when I was an undergraduate a number of decades ago. Uh, but I think it, there is an increase in the number of um, speakers who are disinvited, who are uh, shouted down with uh, loud um, <coughs> protests, sometimes physical altercations, with uh, setting of, of uh, fire alarms. Um, and we also know just by surveys of the political affiliation of professors that they are um, drifting rather sharply to the left. In many humanities departments, there are more Marxists than there are people who identify as conservatives. Why do you think that is? Um, some of it is because of an increase in um, social and residential segregation that uh, uh, people with higher 
amounts of education uh, live with other people who are just like them. And people, is particularly in on college campuses or in large cities, and um, people who are more conservative tend to be more in the uh, suburbs, exurbs, and rural areas. Uh, partly because academia has some, I think, some pathologies in terms of uh, people hiring people like themselves. And so that once there was a generation that got tenure in many departments, they uh, replicated themselves, hired people with the same uh, political outlook. Uh, so those are a couple of the reasons. There's, a, there's also a natural, there is, a, I think, a natural affinity among intellectuals for more liberal positions. Some of it justified. It was often liberals and leftists who were at the uh, forefront of social movements that whose achievements we now uh, take for granted and that we now enjoy, such as racial equality, uh, gender equality, and um, uh, gay rights. So some degree of liberal tilt is uh, maybe be a good thing, but when it comes to stifling um, uh, disagreement and debate, then it can become pathological. Recognizing that universities are not structured in a totalitarian fashion and that there still are orthodoxies in universities and taboos, uh, some of which you have touched on. Do you believe that universities follow a propaganda model or would you not go that far? I wouldn't go that far, no. I mean, I think there, there are tendencies uh, in some disciplines and some departments toward replicating particular ideologies. But on the other hand, uh, a lot of members of the heterodox academy are, are university professors. A lot of the uh, responses to uh, campus suppression come from campuses. So it is not uh, it is not totalitarian. It is not a propaganda factory. You had mentioned a variance by discipline uh, in terms of how ideological uh, these disciplines become. That there's a variance. What explains this variance? Why are certain disciplines more ideological, let's say, than others? This this is purely speculative. But I think disciplines that are closer to the sciences tend to be a little less ideological because there is uh, at least a commitment and sometimes the reality of holding your beliefs to uh, empirical account to see which of your beliefs survive uh, empirical tests. Whereas in disciplines where uh, that is not a norm or, or an ideal or an aspiration, uh, there can be more just sheer force of personality, charisma, rhetoric, uh, that can preserve certain beliefs against possible falsification. I remember you were talking about the effects of political correctness in the form of a backlash, a rise of the right, like a counter position. And you already mentioned that the right seems to pose a greater threat right now. Can you talk about the relationship? Why is it that, why is it, is it necessary that when the left gets too out of hand then the right does something similar? That's not exactly the argument. It's more that when opinions get um, suppressed, then people who might even be kind of reasonable seeing the opinions suppressed suspect that the uh, uh, academia or whatever forum it is can't handle the truth. That they're, if they uh, can't show why a position is wrong, why it's incoherent, why it is contradicted by the facts, but they just shut it up completely, they suspect, well, there must be something to that idea because if there's something wrong with it, they could just show it's what was wrong. They wouldn't have to squelch it. And so they can retreat to their own bubbles where much more extreme and um, dogmatic and categorical and unsubtle versions of the hypothesis can, uh, uh, can, can fester, uh, uh, unopposed by uh, people who might be more uh, conversant with the, with the data and the counter arguments. So there can be a kind of um, a malign mirror image of campus orthodoxy in uh, 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 alt-right orthodoxy. Now, by the way, the reason that I think that the right is worse is because they, 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 they have power. I mean, they're the senators, they're the governors, they're the president. And so the right-wing uh, uh, orthodoxy is much more dangerous than professors and uh, students shutting out speakers in universities, but they do, they can feed each other where a lot of the, so let me just be concrete. Uh, there are on uh, uh, universities, there is often a uh, hostility 
and a lack of comprehension of uh, market economies. Uh, now, in reality, there's no such thing as a market economy that does not have regulation and social uh, transfers redistribution. That's just the libertarian fantasy of a perfect anarcho-capitalist uh, free market country where the government does nothing but enforce contracts and prevent the use of force does not exist. And probably good reasons why it doesn't exist. There are a number of reasons why it's not viable. But um, because often those on, uh, on campus assume that capitalism and free markets equate to anarcho-capitalism uh, and uh, capitalism is pretty much a dirty word on campus, then get a hardline libertarian uh, rebound where in a lot of the American right, there's hostility to all regulation, hostility to all redistribution, often resulting in the gutting of completely justifiable mechanisms of regulation or, uh, or social programs uh, out of a reaction to the uncritical uh, hostility to capitalism on the on campus left. So I think it's unhealthy when you have uh, such a lack of uh, nuance, a lack of compromise, a lack of discussion, and you get polarized extremes. And, and we're seeing that in politics on the one hand, universities on the other. Let's get into some cognitive science. I remember you were suggesting that we have some leeway or some elasticity in our brain for what we categorize as an in-group versus an out-group, obviously, because none of us were around each other a million years ago or 10,000 years ago. But that this, but that identity politics somehow undermines it or, or takes advantage of it in a negative manner. Can you explain? Well, there is uh, one of the uh, core beliefs of the, um, of the alt-right, of the kind of Bannon, Breitbart, Trump uh, version of uh, modern nationalism, is that uh, we are hardwired to fall into uh, tribes, that uh, the idea of a global civilization, of transnational organizations is uh, utopian, is futile, uh, because we evolved as uh, tribal creatures. Now, I think we do have tribal instincts, but what uh, counts as a tribe is highly elastic. It's certainly not a race, because in our evolutionary ancestry, we would seldom have uh, encountered a person of another race, so we certainly couldn't have a built-in uh, hostility to other races probably is tied much more to some notion of coalition or clan, people who are uh, on a side who might have some fictive uh, relatedness that, uh, that makes them seem like blood brothers or, or, or like families. Uh, but that, uh, the idea that this coincides with a modern nation state, with the United States of America or France, is I think anachronistic. We have multiple tribal affiliations, we're loyal to our university, to our sports team, to our state or province, to our country, uh, and that there, it's not that we categorize ourselves as belonging to one and only one tribe equals nation, which is in uh, locked in zero-sum competition with uh, other nations. And that is the basis of Trumpist foreign policy. Okay, for our viewers, for the people watching this, can you define the Enlightenment broadly speaking? What are the values of the Enlightenment? Well, the, um, there's no official definition because it didn't, uh, there weren't like opening and closing ceremonies, there was no membership uh, card, so there really is no definition. It's, it's a term that's loosely applied to, as a, a movement to a number of um, uh, thinkers in the sec typically in the second half or second two-thirds of the 18th century, primarily in uh, England, Scotland, uh, America uh, and uh, Germany. It tends to include a uh, embrace of uh, science, a skepticism toward religion and scripture, an emphasis on uh, the uh, power of reason uh, and of, uh, of uh, human rights. When I refer to uh, Enlightenment ideals, I spell it out in the subtitle of my book, I mean, we reason, science, humanism, and progress. Uh, now, I don't claim that that is the correct definition of uh, the Enlightenment. I don't care what the correct definition is. There isn't one. Uh, I wrote a defense of reason, science, humanism, and progress. 
I used enlightenment as a loose label form. I could have also called it secular humanism. I could have called it co co cosmopolitan liberalism. Um, enlightenment ideals were catchier, but uh, nothing is at stake over whether the term is uh, correct. In that case, uh, let us dive into some of these ideas, particularly progress and humanism. Uh, to start, I think it's fair to say that the term progress has a very long and diverse history in the history of philosophy. In the interest of synchronizing our metric, uh, we'd like to touch on the similarities and differences of your view of progress and its previous historical usage. Uh, for example, the philosopher of progress, Hegel, believed that material substance conformed to a sort of set inevitable ideological track and that this was how history worked. Uh, a sort of unfolding of material on a set course of ideas, and that this was inevitable. But this seems to conflict with your view of progress. Um, would you agree? Absolutely, yeah. Well, when, I, when I think of progress, it's, it's not that. Uh, it where, is also, does, where does your view of progress differ? Um, first of all, I deny that there exists a force, a dynamic, a dialectic that we can call progress. The um, human condition does not have progress built in. Uh, quite the contrary, the, the universe uh, is indifferent to us. It kind of grinds us down, both the um, forces of, uh, of entropy, the growth of natural growth of disorder, uh, and the process of, ev of evolution, which is a competitive process where um, the various germs and parasites and pathogens and the pestilence organisms and spoilage organisms are always trying to uh, do us in, eat away at our well-being. And uh, the only way that progress happens in the uh, teeth of all of these forces pushing against it is the extent to which humans use ingenuity, that is their understanding of how the world works, and they deploy it uh, in the service of improving human well-being. Where human well-being would include health, uh, happiness, prosperity, freedom, uh, stimulation, social ties, uh, the kind of things that, uh, that, that people like and want, to the extent that the kind of things that people like and want improve over the course of time, that's progress. And what makes it possible is humans solving problems, deploying their understanding of the world to make other humans better off. Thank you. We, we, we're just trying to make sure that our viewers understand how your view of progress differs from, let's say, the traditional, if there is one, uh, view of progress. Yeah, that's absolutely, it's, that's extremely important because people often confuse them. And indeed, my, the notion that I have of progress is actually a rather simple and boring one. Namely, if um, people live longer, that's progress. If people are less likely to be murdered, that's progress. If women can do what they want to do, that's progress. So the Enlightenment thinkers, uh, in the early enlightenment tied technological progress to ideological progress arguing that the two go hand in hand would you also agree to that assumption not necessarily uh because it depends on what the technologies are deployed to do um nuclear weapons for example are a technological tour de force but not a an example of progress because they're designed to kill people instead of making better off uh, antibiotics on the other hand vaccination um, antiretrovirals, those are examples of progress because they also involve human ingenuity, but in order to make people uh, uh, happier and healthier and longer lived. So the progress, technology only drives progress when it's um, deployed in the service of humanism. And that's why, crucially, in my subtitle, I had humanism as one of the ideals. Without it, scientific uh, advances don't necessarily lead to progress. Thank you. Uh, we find with the Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin, he believes that these two should also not be equated, that technological progress and ideological progress can be leagues apart. Uh, when looking at the West, do you find that this is the case? Or do you find that when you, when you look at Western societies, that their technological progress does match their ideological progress? Second. Sorry about that. I don't know if you're, I hope you're editing this. Uh, so uh, it's going online unedited. Okay. Uh, so it'll be, uh, it, it'll be uh, unbuttoned. Um, I mean, sometimes, not, not always. And uh, it's important to distinguish 
uh, Enlightenment ideals with Western ideals. Uh, the Enlightenment, a lot of the ideals originated in the West. All ideas have to originate somewhere, but they're uh, they're not the same thing. And in the West, there's been furious opposition to Enlightenment ideals uh, in counter-Enlightenment, in, in uh, romantic militarism, in romantic nationalism. So Western and Enlightenment are definitely not the same thing. Uh, and within the West, there, there have been uh, many examples of uh, progress, often driven by, by science and technology, uh, or by um, uh, philosophy and um, uh, human rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's hard even to call that Western. It did, uh, most of it was written by, um, uh, by some Western uh, thinkers, and it was pushed by Eleanor Roosevelt, but uh, with the opposition of many forces within the West. The United States is very squeamish, for example, about signing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, because uh, there, there was uh, Jim Crow, there was racial segregation. Britain was uh, uh, uneasy about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights because they still had their colonies. Whereas a number of uh, Eastern um, countries were happy to sign on, um, Ethiopia and Africa, a number of um, Muslim majority countries were happy to sign on. So is universal human rights a Western concept? Well, uh, somewhat uh, and somewhat not. Understanding that it varies in the way it's been, Enlightenment ideas have been adopted, would you still say that the genesis of the Enlightenment is a uniquely European phenomenon? Um, no. Uh, some of the uh, parallel ideas originated in other parts of the world, in, uh, in India, in uh, Ethiopia. There was a, uh, a, uh, a, a hermit living in a cave in Ethiopia. Um, named um, Jacob, who uh, kind of originally, uh, uh, sorry, independently came up with a number of the Enlightenment themes like skepticism of, of a scripture and, uh, um, uh, uh, and human rights. Uh, more recently, in the family of ideas that I think most of us would want to uh, promote, there were ideas that distinctly came from the East, such as Gandhi's concept of nonviolent resistance, such as restorative justice and Ubuntu from South Africa. So the family of ideas that center around using knowledge to advance human well-being, they can come from anywhere. If we uh, dilute the Enlightenment down to just sort of these universal ideas as opposed to a specific European movement, do we run the risk of sort of decaffeinating it into just the kind of core essence of human beings that seeks freedom? Well, uh, Is it still the Enlightenment? Well, uh, you know, y yes and no. So no in terms of capital E Enlightenment, if by that you want to use the word to refer to the family of ideas that originated in certain thinkers in the second half of the 18th century. Uh, but words often, often have multiple meanings. There are far fewer words in the English language than there are concepts. And so we can distinguish the Enlightenment referring to a historical period and movement from Enlightenment ideals, namely reason, science, uh, and humanism. And uh, just as long as we're clear which of them we're, we're referring to when we use the word Enlightenment. Would you attribute the polygenesis of these Enlightenment ideas as a reflection of our human nature, that human beings want freedom, seek rationality uh, universally, and this is why it's a polygenesis? To some extent. The thing is that we all want freedom uh, for ourselves. The idea that we ought to promote freedom for everyone may not be so uh, hardwired into human nature, but it might be universal nonetheless with a combination of features of human rationality and self-interest, just the logical necessity that you can't coherently say that only my rights count because I'm me and you're not. Logic doesn't recognize me versus you. And so when you have certain human intuitions, such as uh, our own desire for health and happiness, for ourselves and our families, but then sharpened in the or, or hardened in the crucible of debate 
in discussion with people who are unlike us, then the requirement of logical consistency paired with the desire for freedom and well-being will push in the direction of universal uh, human well-being. Namely, as soon as I'm in conversation with you, I, I can't say, well, only my happiness counts because I mean you're not, and hope for you to continue the conversation. If we're going to come to any kind of agreement, it's going to have to be, well, if I value my freedom, I've got to uh, acknowledge your desire for your freedom. So let's come up with a social arrangement that gives us the maximum amount of freedom consistent with our not impinging on each other's freedom. We come up with a social contract. That's not exactly human nature, that a single person thinking up how the world would work would never come up with that, or probably wouldn't. But with human nature in the combination of discourse, debate, holding other people to account, ferreting out logical inconsistencies can, I think, will push in the direction of humanism and other enlightenment values. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. If, if these sort of intuitions uh, that, are, that are required for this crucible of debate and discussion are universal and are something that human beings didn't choose to have, they sort of transcend our, our conscious choice and are ascribed into our natures. Is it something that's therefore beyond humanism in the sense that human beings control the, the instincts that cause them to be enlightened? They are because of maybe evolution, larger historical factors, and that we just kind of play along in this role. Well, they are. Um, I think they're, they're, they're natural in the sense that as people start to interact with larger and larger uh, universes of discourse, with more people who are unlike themselves, uh, and, and as they learn from historical mistakes, as they see what works and what doesn't, 
anybody, of course, it kind of pushes them in the direction of universal humanism, but it, although it's far from determined, because ideals and norms and institutions like checks and balances, liberal democracy, peer review, scientific communities, free speech, those are not inevitable. They're not even particularly natural. They are optimal in the sense that if we seek to improve our condition, those are the mechanisms that will allow us to do it. And I think it's for that reason that you do see some, uh, you do see progress uh, empirically. There uh, is a, seems to be a historical movement toward abolishing slavery and human sacrifice and discriminatory laws and practices and cruel practices, not even, not inevitable, not monotonic, um, but unmistakable. And I think it's the combination of the of human interests and the inherent uh, impartiality or objectivity of, uh, of reason when and where you do apply it. it if, as soon as you get committed to reason, you're forced along certain tracks. If the, let's say this is a, a sort of game theory scenario, right? Where, like you said, my recognizing of your rights and your recognizing of my rights lead to an optimal sort of superordinate uh, situation. Are the, are the rules that make that superordinate situation or, or optimal uh, game we should be playing determined by human beings or are human beings players in a game where the rules, those rules are beyond us? Uh, and if they are beyond us, is it still fair to say that human beings are the greatest uh, determiners of their, of their destiny, that there's still humanism? Or are these, are these rules transhuman? Yeah, you know, I tend to think they are transhuman in that any rational, uh, species, rational self-interested species would uh, be, be forced to them in the, in the limit in, in as discourse uh, proceeds over time. They are thought up by humans. Uh, they then constrain humans. So, for example, I love the idea of peer review in science, and I hate the experience of getting reviews of my own manuscripts back. Because like all scientists, I think, oh, idiot, what do you miss the point? And, uh, why does he want me to mess up my beautiful paper? Uh, on the other hand, stepping back, I realize as much as I hate the reviews that I get, at a meta level, I sign on to the whole idea of peer review, knowing simultaneously that I'm right about everything that I say, and that as a human being, I couldn't possibly be right about everything that I say. So we do have to live, live with that dual Conscious, consciousness as the combination probably of our evolutionarily shaped human nature, which is to believe that we're always right and noble, and the conclusion that we're forced to in discussion with others, in acknowledgement of history, that yeah, everyone thinks they're right, they can't all be right, uh, they, they're wrong, I'm not a, uh, a superman, I'm not a deity, uh, I can't be any less uh, uh, fallible than everyone else that I see. Therefore, I'm going to submit to those rules. So it doesn't come naturally, but it's something that we can uh, fall into given debate, given experience, given awareness of history. Fukuyama wrote about the end of history, which is essentially claiming that liberalism is the undisputed champion of the world. But then there's Alexander, Alexander Dugan who says, no, there's a multiplicity of other options, viable options. Do you see there being another option to enlightenment, to enlightenment values? Well, um, there's no viable alternative to reason, certainly, if as soon as you start to argue that there might be, you've lost the argument because you've appealed to reason. Or if you, conversely, if you reject reason, there's no reason for anyone to take the argument seriously because you confess there's no good reason to believe it. So I don't think there's an alternative to reason. Uh, I don't think there's an alternative to humanism other than uh, that you could argue for. I mean, you could impose your view by brute force, but then uh, again, you're not providing a, uh, an argument that it is um, viable or justifiable. And for the, for the same reason, I don't think there's an alternative to science. Now, this is, a, this is these are normal arguments. This is what we ought to strive for. If you interpret Fukuyama as making historical argument that societies will inevitably go in that direction, 
It's not clear that he himself would have argued that, but, uh, but that certainly isn't true. You can certainly have argument, uh, societies devolving into uh, dictatorship and uh, other forms of authoritarianism. In terms of the direction that the world has taken, I think it's easy to blow off Fukuyama, and he did set himself up for uh, easy refutation. There are umpteen articles that announce the return of history with the rise of authoritarian capitalism in, in China or um, nationalist populism in, in Russia and for that matter in the United States. Uh, on the other hand, uh, in Fukuyama's defense, the number of democracies has increased since he published that article in, in 1989, and not just in the uh, Eastern Europe, but in Latin America, in East Asia, in Africa. Uh, and even with the backlashes, it's not clear uh, in, in the future how many countries are going to model themselves on, you know, say, Putin's Russia. Uh, it, it seems uh, unlikely. So end of history, it was a gimmick. I mean, even Fukuyama probably didn't really mean the end. And he certainly didn't mean history in terms of stuff no longer happening. Uh, I mean, he meant conflict over major um, systems of national organization. Uh, but it's, uh, in terms of whether, say, France is going to become more like China in 50 years or China is going to become more like, more like France, uh, it's, uh, it's not clear, but if I had to bet on one or the other, I'd say China becoming more like France. Okay, speaking on this is-ought divide, have you read Sam Harris's Moral Landscape? And if so, what do you think about it? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I tend to be sympathetic with, uh, with uh, Harris's argument in the Moral Landscape. Uh, I, um, I, it's a, it is a statement of humanism. He may have stated some aspects of it more strongly than, than I would when he, he claims that you know, in a, in a nutshell, to oversimplify that, that uh, what is moral is a uh, an empirical matter, a matter of what makes people best off. Uh, and that, uh, if you interpret that as saying that it is just an empirical matter, that there is no philosophical grounding to it, then I, I think that would go too far. It's not clear whether Sam himself would insist on that. Is a view of progress compatible with postmodernism? A, a sort of anti-grand narrative ideology. Depends on what aspect of postmodernism you're uh, you're referring to. There may be within postmodernism the idea that when power imbalances get rectified when uh, people of color and women uh, uh, wrest power from white males. That would be a kind of progress. Uh, but uh, certainly the notion that uh, there's been a long history of progress which could continue driven by science and universal human rights, I think probably most postmodernists wouldn't, uh, wouldn't sign on to that. Again, I'm not sure whether I would call that a grand narrative. You know, if people, uh, if people try to solve problems, occasionally they succeed. If they, uh, their solutions accumulate, then, then uh, life can get better for more and more people. Is that a grand narrative? It doesn't sound so grand to me, but it is something that I would defend. Okay, while we're irritating the postmodernists, there's progressive nations, then that means that there's non-progressive nations or even perhaps backwards nations. Does this mean that some cultures are better than others? Well, it, 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 it means it better than others in some ways. So I think, uh, for example, a, a culture in which women have equality is better in that regard, in which girls are kept out of school and women are forced to marry and uh, uh, prevented from driving and, and, uh, and voting. So yeah, I think a society that uh, executes homosexuals is morally inferior to one that has uh, equal rights. So yeah, I think uh, if you... It sounds more radical than it is, but if you have any moral standards whatsoever, societies differ in the degree to which they implement them, and in, at least in those regards, those practices of those societies are, are superior. It doesn't mean that the people are superior. It doesn't mean that, that any individual has more inherent moral value than any other one. But in terms of cultures, practices, habits, yeah, how could you maintain the opposite if you had any commitment to what is moral? Okay, I know you got to go. So Peter's going to ask one question. Then if I have time, I'll just ask one more. 
Okay. What is the cause of this progress that you've observed uh, in your writings? At what expense did we obtain it? When one looks at the history, uh, it's tempting to say that because of colonialism, slavery, child labor in factories, that this was sort of the price we enlightened societies paid for their advancement. What would you say to that claim? Child labor is uh, uh, certainly vastly predates uh, the Enlightenment. And that was just the default. You sent your children to work in the farm on the farm. If I may, uh, very briefly, uh, to specify, when we yeah. when we mention child labor specifically in the English textile industry, uh, from which the Industrial Revolution sort of, let's say, sparked, uh, there was a recruitment for orphans, uh, small children with nimble fingers that could work threading machines. These are the specific child labors referring to. Yeah. Okay. No. Fair enough. Yeah. There. There were. Well. There were clearly uh, a number of harms that uh, coincided with, say, the, with the Industrial Revolution. And if we could go back in time and make arguments then that we appreciate now, then one could imagine an alternative history that would have had the advantages of industrialization without the, the uh, harms. Um, certainly colonial exploitation way antedated, antedated the, uh, the Enlightenment, with, beginning with Columbus and Cortez and uh, Pizarro, that was way before the Enlightenment. And that was, uh, uh, in fact, it's kind of what empires did throughout history is they conquered and exploited this, their subjugated uh, population. So I would not say that those are uh, certainly an, a necessary accompaniment of um, Enlightenment values. But more generally, it, it, nothing is, uh, occurs with only uh, benefits. Uh, specific, especially in hindsight, there's a lot that, that ought to have unfolded uh, differently. Uh, in terms of the necessary price that, uh, that, that was paid, certainly harm to the environment uh, was a, an accompaniment of industrialization that we, we still have not dealt with in the case of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And the next stage in anything that we'd want to call progress is to enjoy the advances that energy capture has brought uh, while rectifying and undoing the harm that we've done to the environment. If I may just press on your answer to a degree, understanding that these, let's say, perils and evils predate the Enlightenment, is it still possible that they were a huge contributing factor for the success of enlightened societies who made, let's say, the most efficient use of these perils? Well, uh, to, to some extent. So, for example, the uh, growth in uh, economies in the 19th century, uh, or I, uh, especially the first half of the 19th century, partly uh, exploited slave labor, uh, particularly in, in the United States. Although, of course, it was the 19th century in which slavery was, for the first time in history, uh, abolished in country after country. Uh, but yes, it, it is. It, more general answer is that uh, as history unfolded, there were uh, uh, harms that accompanied the uh, the benefits. Were they necessary? Uh, I don't think so. But since history only unfolded once, we'll never know for sure. That is, if enlightenment were applied more consistently, and uh, the rights and interests of people in of, of indigenous populations, uh, populations in Africa and Asia were taken into account if the universal human rights really was universal. Could we have had an industrial revolution and expansion of rights that truly was universal? I think that that, that could have happened. It didn't happen uh, to the ex extent that uh, it should have, that universal human rights have to wait at least a, a century, maybe 150 years. Um, and that is the way the history unfolded, yes. Okay, the last question, you can choose between one of these two. Do you feel like some of the new atheists feel that Jordan Peterson is causing harm to the Enlightenment project by making religion more palatable? So that's question number one, you can choose that. Or what are your thoughts on Noam Chomsky? I know he has some disagreements with you, and I wanted to know if, if you've read them and if you could outline to our audience what they are and then your responses to that. So you can choose between yeah. those two. Well, um, Jordan Peterson is, a, uh, I think, probably by his own... Uh, mission in, in many ways a counter-enlightenment uh, thinker. So uh, including his sympathy to, to religion, his skepticism about uh, progress. Um, so uh, 
so, so yes, I don't, I don't think I would identify him, uh, despite his intellectual independence uh, and his willingness to challenge authority. He is not what you would call a defender of the Enlightenment project. In terms of um, Chomsky, uh, he, uh, I think he has a um, being an anarchist himself. He necessarily has a romantic. Uh, vision of life in a state of nature, of uh, before the onset of government and civilization. Uh, the uh, data uh, pretty much universally show that there were higher rates of violence in pre-state societies than in state societies. This would include the biggest analysis done so far, that came out after I finished Better Angels of Our Nature, by uh, Jose, Jose Maria Gomez and his collaborators, where they accumulated every uh, data that they could come across on rates of violence in bands, tribes, chieftains, and states, and in across their hundreds of societies, they show unequivocally that rates of violence are lower in state societies than in uh, tribal societies. So I think that uh, that uh, although uh, Noam tends to um, deny that, it goes against his uh, anarchist uh, sensibilities, but that's, that's what the data suggest. Uh, if you look at them in their entirety and instead of cherry picking uh, a few peaceful societies which undoubtedly exist and they, and and i have celebrated the fact that societies have become more peaceful over time but they did not start out peaceful thank you so much time i appreciate it My it was pleasure. a pleasure thank, thank you so much for your time <laughs> thank you and sorry for the interruptions thanks thank you very much no worries have a great day thank you you too bye Uh, yes, can you hear me? Yes, great to see you again. Thank you for doing Thanks. this so, well, at such short notice. Thanks for having me. Where are you, by the way? Now I'm at home because it's actually my wedding anniversary. I got married one year ago. Hey, congratulations. Thank You're you so much. But uh, right. actually, the next question is where is home? What, what, uh, where are you called? Oh, where are you Toronto, from? Toronto. I thought you meant okay. where. Okay, I'm going to be in Toronto in a uh, couple of weeks. Okay, cool. <laughs> it was just there. But anyway, yes, okay. Okay, okay. So the question is, as a linguist, what do you make of the redefinition of words, primarily, at least as far as my research has shown, by the campus left, by the grievance studies, or the radical left, or whatever they're called, such as racism, which is the old definition of racism plus power, or violence, which is which now incorporates speech, not physical violence, or what constitutes a Nazi? Because they may say, well, words change all the time. We're just changing words. This is just par for the course. So I want to know what you think about that. It is true that words change all the time, but it's a, an organic, bottom-up, viral process. It's not something that uh, an interest group can engineer. Uh, first of all, because you've got to get buy-in from you know, several hundred million English speakers, and uh, unless you're a, uh, a language uh, totalitarian despot, you can't order people how to, how to speak. Some things catch on in, in processes that no one quite understands. And certainly, if it's in the service of an agenda, then there's going to be a lot of uh, obvious resistance. You know, if I'm Coca-Cola and I say, well, I'm legislating from now on, the word water will mean Coca-Cola. So every time you order water at a restaurant, we're going to serve you Coca-Cola and bill you for it. And you say, wait a sec, that's not what water means. And I say, well, look, words change all the time. You say, no, wait a second. Uh, that's just sheer manipulation. That's not going to uh, work. It. And it, uh, it should not work. And I'd say the same thing for uh, an interest group trying to redefine words as people ordinarily understand them, which is the, but in any case, the only way in which language changes anyway. Uh, I can speak with some authority here, being the chair of the usage panel of the American Heritage Dictionary. And uh, when I uh, ask my, my colleagues of the dictionary, uh, how do you guys decide what the uh, official meaning of words is? And they say, well, we, we uh, pay attention to the way people use language. So it's not as if any authority, even a dictionary board, can legislate language. And in the case of um, words like, like uh, racism, it, uh, it really is a, a terrible idea to try to change the meaning so that people can't even get certain thoughts across. So if you ask, is it possible for uh, a, uh, uh, you know, a white, powerless, unemployed, working class person in a poor uh, southern or Appalachian town to, be, uh, to have um, derogatory opinions about African Americans, and you say, oh, no, 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 we can't ask if he's racist because uh, racist means that you have to have power 
Uh, well, you can't even ask the question. Uh, and similarly, uh, to say that it is impossible for uh, an African American to have uh, bigoted thoughts about Asians or whites, or for uh, Asians to have bigoted thoughts about uh, African Americans if they happen to be powerless. Well, the po only point of language is to get thoughts across, to communicate. If you try to jigger words so that certain thoughts are impossible or difficult to express, then you just made it uh, impossible to get knowledge and clarity uh, about the state of the world. And this thing would be true of violence. Um, you know, metaphors are great. We can talk about um, use anything as a, as a, in a metaphorical sense. But uh, you really do want to make a distinction between someone saying mean things on Twitter and someone uh, putting a bullet in your head or a, a knife between your ribs. Uh, and to say that, well, you're not allowed to use words that distinguish those. If you use the word violence to refer to physical violence, it has to apply to verbal violence as well. Well, how are you going to say uh, even the thought that I just said, that, that I just expressed, uh, namely that there is a big difference between uh, being murdered and being insulted? Or in the case of my own uh, research, that there's been an enormous decline in the uh, occurrence of physical violence. Has there been a, a decline or an increase? or no change in the amount of uh, insult? Uh, well, that's an interesting question, but it's a, it is a separate question. And the point of language is we can pose that question or any other question. That's the beauty and power of language and the idea of trying to uh, engineer it in a way that advances a particular theory or agenda or political um, ideology at the expense of just being able to share our ideas is a, is a bad idea. Bad idea because it makes it hard to uh, get clarity, get knowledge, get understanding, but it also uh, excludes people from the discourse in an age in which we're getting more polarized than ever, uh, more, more and more people uh, not only disagree with uh, others, but think that they are stupid or, and uh, evil, since not everyone can be um, uh, infallible and omniscient and correct about everything. There's got to be room for uh, respectful disagreement trying to engineer language to make that impossible is a, uh, is a pernicious idea. Okay, that's pretty much it. Has it ever worked where an organization or someone from the top down imposed a certain word and then it became part of the dictionary because people had to use it? There, there certainly are changes. For example, um, the, the um, a title Ms. as opposed to the former uh, Mrs. Uh, there was a campaign in the 1970s, it wasn't from any organization, but that uh, that Miss and Mrs. should be dropped and Ms. they should be replaced by Ms. I mean, that was for a particular political agenda and it uh, it, it carried the day, uh, partly because it did not, um, it, it actually uh, increased the utility of language. There are a lot of times when I, you know, I, I don't know if a woman is married or not, and I don't care, and I shouldn't be, the language shouldn't force me uh, to decide it kind of gets in the way of communication together of course with conveying uh, the attitude that a, uh, a woman's marital status is an essential part of her identity but that is not true of, uh, of men. And there have also been changes in words like um, uh, Negro which was a perfectly acceptable word in the 1960s. Uh, Martin Luther King referred to Negroes. We have the United Negro College Fund uh, that was replaced by black which has been partly superseded by African-American. Uh, and other other terms for politically uh, and emotionally charged concepts like crippled for uh, people that we would now call uh, disabled and in between they were handicapped. Uh, so there is that kind of, I've called it a euphemism treadmill where one uh, term replaces another. Again, there's no one who really legislates it. Uh, it is a grassroots um, phenomenon that catches on. There again, there is no particular harm to uh, clarity of communication. If you call someone uh, African-American or you call them black, um, you're, you're conveying the same uh, concepts. There's a change in attitude. Uh, and there, so it is possible for, for terms to change, but those are ones where there was nothing particularly um, you know, tendentious and nothing that particularly impeded communication or in fact, <clears throat> impeded it at all. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I appreciate the something like 16-hour turnaround from when you received the request for this. <laughs> my, my pleasure, Kurt, and uh, ha happy anniversary. I hope you're going to uh, celebrate well tonight.
Thank you so much. Any tips? I know that you've been married for quite some time. I believe you've been married for a while. Uh, yes, uh, too many times, uh, uh, more, uh, more than once. Uh, but uh, uh, the uh, well, as, as a place to celebrate, I know this is incredibly touristy. But when I go to Toronto, I go up to the top of the CN Tower. Uh, not the best food in the world, and there are a lot of tourists there. But uh, the view really is uh, spectacular. So that's why oh, I, just, I just meant marriage tips, not places oh, to go for the oh, anniversary yes. event itself. Oh, well, uh, I don't know if I, I have anything here isn't uh, banal other than, uh, you know, you're not going to get your way all the time. Uh, the other person is not uh, perfect, and you know, neither are you. That's uh, 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 one of the, 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 uh, the ground rules. Um, but uh, you've got to be a team that uh, lots of people in life are going to uh, oppose you, attack you, undermine you. But, uh, but, but when you get home, uh, you got to have the uh, solidarity and loyalty and support of your uh, spouse, uh, of course, working both ways. Okay, thank you so much. That's it. Have a great day and a great weekend. <laughs> Appreciate okay. it. My pleasure. Thank you.